raise my voice a bit. Um, anyways, tonight we're going to be continuing our investigation into how uncertainty, this is our topic for 2022 that's kind of dominating our teaching time this year, is uncertainty. Um, and we're going to be investigating tonight, we're going to be pursuing this investigation into how uncertainty can actually strengthen our faith. We're going to be looking at that as we start a new series that's going to be on the first half of the Gospel of Mark. And we've chosen this particular book, the book of Mark, and these particular chapters from this book for a reason. So before we dive in tonight, I want to set the stage as best I can for what the preaching team and I are actually hoping for in this series. And that means that tonight's teaching time, which is what we're in now, is going to be a little bit unusual in that it's going to be kind of divided into two halves. Um, for the first 10 or so minutes, I want to try and set some sense of context for the Gospel of Mark as a whole. So it's going to be a little bit more um, like school, I think. We're going to be trying to learn some things about how the Gospel actually functions and what it's up to. And then in the back half of the teaching time, we're going to be looking at the first chapter um, of Mark as a kind of microcosm of this question, which I think is the question that dominates the whole book. And the question is, what do we believe about Jesus? What do we believe about him? So, to get started with context, Mark's gospel is particularly interesting to us this year because Mark's gospel, more so than any other account of Jesus' life, is interested in how we know whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. How we know whether or not Jesus is who he, who he says he is. Whereas other gospel accounts fixate on Jesus' ability to fulfill scripture, which is what Matthew is kind of about, or the impact of Jesus' existence on early Christian theology or beliefs about God, which is kind of what the Gospel of John is about, or the importance of trying to create as accurate a record as possible of Jesus' life, which is what Luke is about. Mark is focused on whether or not the dual claims that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and that Jesus is the Son of God will deeply matter to the lives of people in the first century. Do those two claims matter? Do we believe them? The author clearly believes that Jesus was a man of wisdom, of power, and of purpose. But as we read through the gospel, the question is, do you believe that he was the Messiah? What does that mean, even? Do the people in the story believe him, and why? Are any of us willing to take this belief, if we're willing to claim it, all the way to its end? Mark's gospel is sometimes referred to as the gospel of trials, both because it begins with Jesus' tribulations in the wilderness, like right out of the gate in chapter 1, and then it also spends more than half of its chapters, more than half of its time, in the last 24 hours before Jesus' crucifixion. So Jesus' literal trial before his death. But that nickname, the Gospel of Trials, I think also works in other ways as well. And the first of those ways has to do with the historical context of this gospel. The most common view of critics and scholars is that the Gospel of Mark was written probably in the mid-60s A.D., most likely 64 or 65. We have a more accurate date for this one for a whole host of complicated reasons than we do most of the other books of the New Testament. But 64, 65 is roughly the estimate. 
and that it was written by a Christian scribe, possibly in the city of Rome, almost certainly in Italy somewhere, and even more almost certainly, that was a terrible sentence construction, but even more importantly, a, a Christian scribe who's under the tutelage of a man named Peter, who's the same Peter that was once one of Jesus's disciples. So why do we believe all of that? Why these years? Why this connection to Peter? Well, from the weeks following Jesus's resurrection until the later years of the first century, it's important to try and recognize a couple of things. Number one, we also have to remember that Jesus says to his disciples after he ascends to heaven that he's coming back. And so there's this assumption among all of his early followers that that means like soon, like maybe next week, maybe the week after. And so there's not a big sense initially of like how we need to set a record for the future because what future are you talking about? Like Jesus could be back before you get to the second chapter of your book. Like there's not a good reason for that. It's also worth remembering that at that time, the essential method for spreading any story, just including the Jesus story, is going to be by way of personal testimonies that have anchor points in the lives of the people that actually knew Jesus one-to-one, -one, that knew him personally. In a time when less than 10% of the population is literate, this is a standard practice for how any story is going to spread. It made more sense to communicate a story aimed at regular people through the words of eyewitnesses than to use something that's more limited in its reach and more expensive, like a letter or a book. And I think we can imagine how this would feel, right? Think of the stories in your own life that are particularly important, the experiences in your own life that are particularly important, in the history of your friend group, in the history of your family. Do you generally write those stories down? Or do you remember them by telling them over and over again? So this system of like oral transmission of the Jesus story is, makes sense in the context of the first century, and it especially makes sense for people who are anticipating Jesus' return any minute now. But in the mid-60s AD, three factors come together which change the strategies for the leaders of the early church regarding how they handle and communicate the Jesus story. The first of those factors is the continued spread of the Jesus movement. This thing that began in this kind of relative backwater of Judea has now spread all throughout Asia and even into Europe. It's even led to house church communities forming in the capital of Rome. And this means that it's no longer possible for every single messenger of the Jesus story, every single messenger of the gospel, to have that direct connection to somebody who knew Jesus personally. There are people telling the story in Rome to other Romans that have not met anybody that would have known him personally. And so we get further away from that direct connection. And so a written record becomes, in some ways, a kind of solution to this problem, a way to address this particular problem. So that's factor one. The second factor was the fallout from a pivotal event in both Roman and Christian history, which is the Great Fire of Rome. In the year 64, 10 of the 14 wards or districts of the capital of Rome are burned nearly to the ground in this terrible accident. To make a long story short, in the chaos that follows from this giant fire and this giant catastrophe, 
The emperor of the time, a guy named Nero, desperately needs to deflect the blame that's piling up on his own shoulders for being responsible somehow for this fire. And so what he does is he finds scapegoats in those little house churches of marginalized Christians in the city of Rome that we just talked about. And so Nero issues the first official decree calling for the persecution of Christians. And that persecution is going to include things, well, it's going to include things all the way up to feeding people to lions in the Colosseum and crucifying people along Roman roads. And even, according to some records, like lighting Christians on fire in order to light the street at night. So a written record of these gospels, of the Jesus story, is not just something that helps maintain that connection to the historical person. It's also something that the church is imagining might be useful to particular Christians that are being threatened and persecuted in Rome, because it might help them see the Jesus story, not just as a miraculous story about Jesus, but the story that connects to their own story as they're also experiencing trials, right? As they're also experiencing persecution over the things that they believe about them. So a written record helps shape the story into a shape that's going to be useful to those particular Christians. And then the third factor was that both because of the passage of time and also because of all of these new persecutions, it's becoming increasingly clear that the firsthand witnesses to Jesus's life are not gonna be around forever, that they're going to die, that they may in fact be martyred. And as those witnesses begin to die, as they begin to be martyred, the need for a written record to add validity to the oral tradition of the Jesus story becomes obvious. And so due to those three factors, the spread of the movement, the trials under Nero, and the deaths of direct witnesses, church tradition holds that the task of writing all of the things down, writing a gospel, falls to a man named John Mark. I'm not going to get into the weeds on whether we believe that the historical John Mark wrote Mark or not. We're going to go with church tradition here, which says that a guy named John Mark is given the task. And this guy, John Mark, is a former assistant to the Apostle Paul. We know this much. And he's also this longtime follower, disciple of Jesus' disciple, Peter. Peter is one of these people that had lived the story out. One of those people that followed Jesus. He features in a significant number of the stories in the gospel. And we also know that Peter and John Mark were both in or around Rome at this particular moment in time. And so they know firsthand just how important it is that somebody write all of the things down in a way that offers reassurance to other Christians in this time of, of literal trial. So whether this book is written by the historical John Mark or not, in the construction of the gospel, Christians under persecution can find a mirror for their own story as they too are challenged to bear witness to Jesus's identity and since Jesus' story ends with an empty tomb, then the story is being told in a way that offers real hope to people whose own stories might very well be heading towards execution, that maybe a resurrection awaits them as well. So Mark's gospel, I think that was about eight minutes, doing, doing the best I can. Was, we hustled through an introduction to, to Mark there. But Mark's gospel is a gospel of trials then in that it focuses on Jesus's legal trial and it comforts Christians facing their own trials. But I think there's one more thread that we can pull on before we, before we shift gears. And that is that I think Mark's gospel also gives us as readers a role to play 
in the metaphorical courtroom. Specifically, the gospel puts us in the place of the jury when we read. Mark lays out, he lays out his case in the book like a prosecutor telling us from the very start that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the accusation, that Jesus is the Son of God. And then Mark calls a series of witnesses in order to back up this claim as he walks through the Jesus story. But in the end, the gospel does something that has always struck readers as being particularly strange. And that is that it's the only one of the gospels that ends on the empty tomb. And it leaves Jesus' conviction as the Messiah, his conviction as the Son of God, up to us. Do we believe that he is who he says that he is? Do we believe in him? What does that mean? Are we really ready to find out? So that's the context, I think, of Mark's gospel. Jesus is on trial before his peers. Then he's on trial as an encouragement to the early church. And finally, he's on trial before us as readers. So now we're going to pivot here to look at the first chapter to try and see a picture of how all of this, all of this works out. So Mark's gospel lays out the big point, the big accusation in its very first verses. The author writes this at the very beginning. He writes, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is our opening six verses or so. So what do we see? Like we heard a moment ago, Mark, the prosecutor, immediately lays out the claim. Immediately he says who Jesus is. He is the Messiah and the Son of God. And that means that Jesus is the one the Israelites have been waiting for. He's the one who's supposed to bring them real freedom. And it also means that Jesus has the very authority of God himself in all the things that he does, which is all just a way of saying that Jesus is the real deal, the whole deal. He's the one who's going to make God's kingdom possible again here on this actual earth. And that's the big claim. That's what it would mean to be the Messiah, the one who makes God's kingdom possible here on earth. And it's worth, I think, pausing just to try and connect ourselves with what this means, not just to Israel, but what it means to us, even these kind of 2,000 years later. At the root of all this, at the root of the need for the Messiah is this sense that we all have that there is something wrong with the way the world is. 
that we experience and see suffering, that we feel and witness injustice, that there's brokenness in governments, there was then, there is now, there's brokenness in jobs, and marriages, and lives. There's even brokenness inside of all of us that we have felt at some point or other as we sense this kind of gap between the kind of person that we could be, but we can never seem to quite be on our own. And all that is to say that we all resonate, I think, with what creation feels like it was meant for, that there's this sense in us of, of what things are supposed to be like, and that it's not quite like that. We see it and we see ourselves kind of falling short of that purpose that we can sense. And in Jewish tradition, the answer to this feeling that, that all people have of this kind of gap between what we sense things could be or should be and the way they are, in Jewish tradition, the answer to that feeling is the Messiah, is this person of God who's going to come and fix Israel. Not everything, at least that's not what they initially believed. He's going to at least kind of fix us, fix our people. But as we're going to see... And then what I think of is maybe the best news that there's ever been, honestly. Jesus, the Jesus that comes, the Jesus that lays claim to that title of Messiah, also sets his sights on more than just Israel. He sets his sights on everyone and on everything that has ever been. And so Mark says right here at the start that this is what we are being invited to believe if we convict Jesus here. We're being invited to believe that Jesus is the real hope, not just of Israel, not just of those people in the first century, but the real hope of everybody to solve that problem inside of us where we feel this gap between the way things could be and the way that they are. So if that's what it means in this context for Jesus to be the Messiah, who, who does Mark put on the stand first? Who are his first witnesses to accuse Jesus of this title. And there are three in those opening verses, back to back to back. First, he says that Isaiah, the ancient prophet, predicts that it will be Jesus. And in that quotation there, he actually blurs a few quotations from the Old Testament in order to say that Jesus's first actions that we're going to see in the story, which again, everybody that's reading this would have heard that story before at some point, He's saying, hey, notice that story you've heard. Pay attention to how it starts because it starts in exactly the way that Isaiah once said that it would. So Isaiah is also predicting that it is Jesus. And then this testimony is linked to the second witness, right? Who's John the Baptist. John believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe he's the first person to believe that. He'd been preaching in the wilderness to all of Judea, been calling them to repent and to prepare themselves for the Messiah's arrival. And then Jesus, who by all accounts is just a regular guy by appearances, walks in, and John is the first person who says, that's the guy that I've been waiting on. He baptizes him in faith as that Messiah. So Isaiah anticipates that it's going to be Jesus. And then John recognizes that it's Jesus. And then who's witness number three in those verses we read? Well, witness number three is God himself, right? When Jesus is baptized, this voice is heard by everybody around that says, I guess he doesn't identify himself by being, hello, this is God. He just speaks in order to assume that, that a voice from the clouds is God. But he says, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. 
So taken together, we have this curious agreement between three unlikely sources. The prophets of the past are in agreement with the prophets of the moment, rare, still rare. And then the God for whom all of those prophets are supposed to be speaking is in agreement with them as well. So not only does this combo kind of support Jesus's idea, it also validates this entire tradition of prophecy. God's voice affirms that everybody has been and still is looking in the same direction, and that direction is Jesus. So then what happens here? Where does John Mark take us from that opening episode? Well, in verse 14, it goes on. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So, here we get some more interesting things. Here we see Jesus' central message, which is also the message that we sense the Messiah should be preaching in that gap that we felt earlier between the way things are and the way things could be. The Messiah, if he's the Messiah, should be addressing that. And what Jesus says here is that the kingdom of God, the, the right kingdom, the kingdom we sense, has come near. The restoration of the world to what God intended for it, which is this thing that the selfishness and the pride of, of people has been resisting, that that kingdom that we've been resisting is now at hand, that it's near one of the things that I find deeply convincing about the Jesus story myself, when I think about it, which I've been thinking about it all week as I've been trying to figure out how to get through the first chapter of John in 28 minutes or so, um, we're cooking along. Anyways, one of the things that I find deeply convincing about the Jesus story is this, just how simple and how deeply resonant the equation of Jesus's hope is. Let's take a step back from the brokenness of all of creation and just look at the brokenness of ourselves. Where does that brokenness come from? What is the root source of, of your own grief, of your own hurt? Why aren't you, why am I, and I, I'm not trying to be accusatory, I mean this to myself too, why aren't we as good or as kind as we might want to be? My conviction is that it's the same two answers for all of us. First, we've been wounded by the selfishness and the pridefulness of other people. And then second, when we are weary from all of that wounding, we are selfish and prideful ourselves. And we do a fair share of the wounding in the meantime. And this is the sabotage, right? Like, this is what gets in the way. I, like, when I'm not the person that I want to be, person I am, I'm somebody that has ceased to be curious, who ceased to be compassionate, who ceased to be kind, because I'm tired, and then I pass that same hurt around in the world that first hurt me, which means that it's just going to move on and hurt somebody else after that. And what is Jesus' message? If that's 
If you're with me on that, if that's your problem as well as my problem, what's Jesus' message in a simple 13 words? He says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. It means the God of the whole universe has taken the initiative, right? Like God has drawn near to me without me doing anything to convince him to, to summon him. I didn't have some like special ritual I found in the back of some weird book that I had to do to get his attention. The God of the universe has drawn near and he has offered me forgiveness for my weaknesses. And he has invited me to lay my burdens down and to trust him to be the one to make everything right. To make all things new. And my job in that equation is to own up to my mistakes, to repent, which I should be able to do, and to accept his presence and to believe. That's the whole story. We talk endlessly about it and we wrestle with it because it's complicated, as simple as it sounds, it's complicated to live out. It's good that we're wrestling this church of a whole, like we're committed to that at this church, to be people who are wrestling with this simple message. But in the end, it's still that's, that's it. There's nothing to add to it. That's the whole gospel. Can we admit to our mistakes and trust someone else to fix them? That's the good news of it. So what makes it so hard? Well, perhaps an answer to that very question, what do we see in those next verses after we get this summary of the gospel? We see the first disciples put down what they are doing, what they know and are comfortable with in order to follow after Jesus. That Jesus interrupts the disciples at work, I am convinced is no coincidence. I think it's part of the, the metaphor of the whole thing. All we need to know at first, all we need to know at first is that what we're doing is not enough. Fishing for fish isn't enough. Managing your nets really well isn't enough. And even if we don't know everything that there is to know about what in the world a Messiah is or what a Messiah does, it's worth bearing in mind that the disciples are only, all they've heard is probably that Jesus got baptized once. All the miracles, all the stories, the death on the cross, the resurrection from the grave is ahead of them. They don't know that part. All they know is that this guy who seems like he might have some answers has invited them to follow him. And so they put down what they're doing and they go. We can put down the things that we know aren't enough and take a few steps. That's how belief starts. We're curious enough, we're wondering enough to trail behind Jesus for a little while. In every gospel account, the disciples are consistently goofuses, right? Like they make every mistake, they don't give anything right. They never quite figured Jesus out. It's also worth pointing out that the disciples didn't sign some kind of like terms of discipleship agreement with Jesus when they put their nets down either. They didn't like lock themselves into a nine-month trial of like following this man around. 
They put their stuff down and they walked. And at any point, they could have just stopped and gone home. There's no, there's nothing forcing them into that, that context. And ultimately, I think this is exactly the challenge for us from this first chapter. We have heard who Jesus is supposed to be. We don't have to be totally convinced by that yet. We only need to be curious enough to put what we're doing down, which we know isn't working, and take those first steps. If we don't do that, if we don't put the things down and take those first steps, here's the tragedy. The tragedy is we will never be convinced because we're not going to be there in the story when the next things happen. The disciples don't get to see Jesus work miracles if they don't put their stuff down and follow him for a bit. And more than that, taking steps doesn't mean you can't go back to fishing at some point if you want to. But do we trust who Jesus is enough to have the same open-handedness? Am I willing to take my discipleship a day at a time, knowing that I don't need to know everything to go one more day and that I can turn around anytime I want to? And what would change in my life now, even as somebody who's been a Christian for 30 years, what would change in my life if I saw every day as a new chance to put down what I know doesn't work and just follow one more day? Would I pay closer attention if I saw my faith that way instead of the way I grew up seeing it, which is this, this one-time decision that locks me into eternity? Would I pay closer attention now at 40 if I saw it as something that I did every day? 30 years into my life as a Christian, am I still interested in who Jesus claims to be? Not always. Before we close, I want us to look at our final witness in the first chapter. Because it may be the most interesting one of them all. After Jesus calls his disciples, he goes into the synagogue to teach. And what he says amazes people. But in verse 23, we see this. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Our last witness to take the stand here tonight is not a disciple. The last witness is a demon. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And I bring this up first because I think it's interesting. In the first 20 verses, Mark frames the gospel as this question about who Jesus is. But we could make the case, I think, that there really isn't all that much uncertainty about who he is, is there? We've seen people believe it. We've heard God say it. And now we hear it from the mouth of a demon. It's true that many of the people in this story are still wrestling with the who question. And they will continue to in the chapters ahead. But I want to suggest tonight that there's a second question which this demon asks that is perhaps going to prove even more important to us as we read through the first half of Mark. And that question is, what do you want to do with us? What are you going to do here, Jesus, Messiah, Son of God? As we close our time tonight, this is what I hope we kind of carry with us. The Gospel of Mark is meant to invite Christians to keep their questions in front of them. 
because it will ultimately be those questions that see us through our own trials. That's the backdrop of this whole thing. And if we think our faith is just about what we have declared that we believe in Jesus or that we believe about Jesus, that at some point we raised our hand and said, like, Jesus is my savior. If we put all of our hope in these simple moments of declaration, we are still keeping ourselves at the center of things. We're putting our hope in our own ability to be strong in our beliefs and to be unwavering in our beliefs. But the Christians in Rome, at the same time this gospel is being written, are at that very moment learning the limits of their own strength and convictions in the pits of the Colosseum. And what they need, the reason the gospel exists and what we all need, is a hope that comes not from what we can do and the strength we have, but rather in what Christ is still doing, even if we don't always understand it, despite our weaknesses. We have been invited, I think, to put down our nets and to follow Jesus in wonder. As we continue to study scripture in the weeks ahead, we need to keep in front of us an open question. What will we find here? What is he doing? Who will we, at the end of things, say he is? I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue with our, our service tonight. God, thank you for 